Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. It's time again for Old Lang Syne. On this week's show, we're looking back at some memorable highlights from 2022. But first, we revisit our conversation with Tennessee Williams scholar Dr. Kenneth Holditch, who passed away in December. Dr. Holditch shares stories of the Pulitzer-winning playwright, whom he counted among his many friends. Then, we take you back to Jackson Square, where today's show hosts, Hoda Kotb and Jenna Bush Hager, tell us what keeps bringing them back to the Crescent City. That's before we visit a place for tourists and locals alike, View Orleans. Located at the foot of Canal Street, the $20 million multimedia experience includes a trip to the 34th floor for a 360-degree view of the city. Finally, we return to the backyard garden of Jack Sweeney, a New Orleanian whose okra plant grew so tall that it got the attention of the folks at the Guinness World Records. We're looking back on the year that was 2022 on this week's Louisiana Eats. Thomas Lanier Williams was born in Columbia, Mississippi in 1911. After moving to New Orleans in 1939, he shed his birth name and adopted one that would become world famous, Tennessee Williams. Life in the Crescent City inspired many of his most famous plays, notably A Streetcar Named Desire, for which he was awarded his first Pulitzer Prize. In his lifetime, Dr. Kenneth Holditch was considered one of the most preeminent authorities on the life and works of Tennessee Williams. Like Williams, Dr. Holditch was born in Mississippi and became enamored with the Crescent City at a young age. A professor at the University of New Orleans, Dr. Holditch helped establish festivals honoring Williams' life here and in two other cities. He published multiple books on the playwright and organized literary walking tours in the French Quarter. He called Tennessee Williams a friend. Dr. Holditch passed away in December at the age of 89. Here's an extended version of our interview with him that first aired in 2011, the centennial of William's birth. Kenneth, how did you come to know Tennessee Williams? Well, we had a lot of mutual friends. I was, of course, born about 60 miles from where Tennessee was born, and we had mutual friends in Mississippi, mutual friends in Memphis, and when I came to New Orleans in 1964 to teach at the University of New Orleans, I used to see him on the streets of the quarter walking all the time. And, 
and we would nod to each other because he was very friendly, though very shy, but I didn't just push myself on him. And we still had a lot of mutual friends in New Orleans, and I just never, you know, got around to insisting somebody introduce us until 1978, January of 78, when he made his only public appearance in New Orleans as a part of the public library's jambalaya program. He read, he was interviewed on stage, then we all went to dinner at uh, Restaurant Jonathan. That was when I first got actually to know him. You know, Why do you believe he loved this city so much? Well, he said when he first came here, I found in New Orleans a freedom I'd always needed, and the shock of it against the puritanism of my nature gave me the material I've continued to write about since then, and he continued to write about until the time he died. He said it was one of the last frontiers of Bohemia, and he felt, he said, my passport uh, has always been permanently stamped Bohemia. I may stray over to the other side, but I always come scuttling back. Describe for us a little bit about his life in New Orleans. Well, he uh, led the same sort of life he he led in terms of his day uh, anywhere else, and that was getting up early in the morning, usually about five, and beginning to ride and riding sometimes seven or eight hours a day. That was seven days a week. He said the only day that he took off was Easter because he felt this religious compunction about working on Easter since he'd grown up as a child in the an Episcopal rectory. And so he worked all day. Then he would go out to lunch, as he described it in uh, his memoirs. He said he was working on a streetcar at the time he was writing about. And he said, I would work all morning and then spent with the rigors of creation. I would walk around the corner to a bar and restaurant called Victor's and have a Brandy Alexander and eat a sandwich and listen to Ink Spots recordings on the jukebox. Then he would walk over to Rampart Street and swim in the New Orleans Athletic Club. Then he would go sometimes to sit in the park in uh, Jackson Square. I actually interviewed a lady who was trying to be a novelist in 1946, and she met him in the park, sitting in, they were both sitting in the park, and, and they became friends. She said, fortunately for him, he was writing Streetcar, and unfortunately for me, I was writing a novel that never got published. But, <laughs> and, that, and then the, at night, he would go out. I mean, he liked the bars, you know, he, the nightlife of the city. Well, so. he also had a great appetite for our food, didn't he? Oh, definitely, he? yeah. Seafood, he loved seafood. He, he wrote it to his mother that uh, how inexpensive oysters were when he first arrived in New Orleans, and shrimp. I think, you know, people in other parts of the country in those days, 38, he came here, December of 38, uh, they didn't know about how different New Orleans was if they hadn't, you know, he'd grown up in St. Louis, and they had probably heard stories. And I mean, my first, even in North Mississippi, my first encounter with with New Orleans was reading George Washington Cable and Lyle Saxon, and I thought, well, that's, I want to go. And he discovered this fantastic food here, and it was seafood almost always on his part. Though he writes about going to a lot of places. He loved Gluck's in the 100 block of Royal, which was a German restaurant. I associate him with spaghetti and meatballs because several of his friends told me that was the one dish he could cook. 
passably, and that it was he was not much of a cook. But he also loved. He never lost his taste for the foods he'd grown up on. You know, vegetables cooked in the Southern style, as his mother had prepared for him. Well, speaking of vegetables cooked in the Southern style, I I read uh, a little something about how that was uh, smothered greens, lima beans. These were things that were not on the menu at one of his favorite haunts, but that he asked for there a lot. Could you tell us about his relationship with Marty's? Well, he lived across the street from Marty's. When, When Marty's opened, he had bought that house on Dumain Street. Tennessee bought that house in 61 and didn't move into one of the apartments until 1971. He gave a variety of reasons for not moving in. He said he didn't like the people there. But he loved it once he got in there so that whenever he was in town, he would stay there. And Marty's opened in the 70s. I remember going to the opening night with George DeRowan. And so Tennessee sort of made himself at home there. Uh, he lo- he loved to play poker, and he would sit on the balcony and play poker with whoever was available. And there's a wonderful picture of him sitting on that balcony when Louis Armstrong Park was being built. And that's where he would ask them to cook the kinds of food that, that he liked. You know. In a city known for festivals, how did Tennessee get his own? Well... There weren't that many festivals then, and the discussion was, well, there should be a literary festival because there are festivals about food, festivals about sports, festivals about music. And so then the suggestion was made, well, it should be a Tennessee Williams festival, which seemed he's certainly not the only writer associated with New Orleans, but I think he, more people know about New Orleans perhaps through his work than through any other writer's work. Streetcar has introduced New Orleans to the world, you know, it's performed somewhere every night, and has been since it first appeared. And so they decided on on Tennessee Williams, and of course, it is really the Tennessee Williams New Orleans Literary Festival. So it's not just Williams, but the focus is still, to some degree, on Williams. Well, Kenneth, I am so thrilled that you made the opportunity for us to sit down and chat on Louisiana Eats well, about. You. One of my favorite people in the world, Tennessee Williams. Thank you. Well, I was glad to do it. And one of my favorite subjects, food. (laughs) Dr. Kenneth Holditch, literary historian, tour guide, and former dining companion of Tennessee Williams. Dr. Holditch passed away in December at the age of 89, but the festival that he helped found will celebrate 37 years this spring when it's held here in New Orleans, March 22nd through the 26th. And I'll be there, as always, with another edition of Poppy's Pop-Up Drag Brunch, something I know both Dr. Holditch and Tennessee would just love. For more information on the festival, visit TennesseeWilliams.net. He's my bandit Alexander Always gets me into trouble But that's another matter Brandy Alexander He's my Brandy Alexander Always gets me into trouble Coming up next, 
Today's show hosts Hoda Kotb and Jenna Bush Hager join us to talk about one of America's favorite playgrounds, New Orleans. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal hot sauce. How New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets. Tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand. Beans done right. Now celebrating 100 years of New Orleans tradition. Celebrate with Camellia by sharing your family's favorite bean stories. Email me at poppy at poppytooker.com to share in the celebration. There's just something about New Orleans that stirs up passion among out-of-towners. Locals, too, of course, but... I mean, there's something about this city that people take with them after they come for a visit or after they live here and move elsewhere. They take a bit of New Orleans along with them. And whether they come back by car, plane, or train, visiting the city is almost like a homecoming. Back to her favorite place. What did it feel like to land? Let me tell you something. This is the best place on earth. It is. Just ask today's show hosts, Hoda Kotb and Jenna Bush Hager. In the 1990s, Hoda worked in New Orleans as an anchor and reporter for a CBS affiliate. And although she's not from here, Jenna can barely contain her excitement when talking about the city. When they rolled into town recently to broadcast the Today Show from Jackson Square, we had the chance to ask them why the Today Show chooses to come here again and again. Here's Hoda. Because it is like an energy jolt to our soul. When you land here, when you walk around, when you meet the people here, like your, your, your body goes from like slumped over and funky to literally like electrified. Yes. I mean, we've been electrified since we got here. I mean, it's the best city. And yeah. you know what? You have a food, a food show. You yeah. wouldn't have it about any city. Yeah. You know, oh, this, no, is this is it. the capital of when eating. I- well, speaking of eating in New Orleans, when you come here, yeah. is there something you eat first 
or what's on your must-eat-always list? Okay, you got to have a beignet to start. I love to go either to Brennan's or Commander's. I like kind of old school. It yeah. just puts me back in that feeling. I love the barbecue shrimp. I want the piece of French yes. bread, crunchy. I want to dunk Dip. it in the sauce. Dip. I just want to lick. Ha ha. Like I know you can't see me, but I'm slurping, Dip. eating, and crunching. Eat Delicious. It. Eat it. Uh-huh. Um, I love Antoine, yes, which I we haven't been yet, but maybe we can squeeze yeah, it in. Yeah, we can squeeze it in. Um, we went to um, Le Petit Grocery. Mm-hmm. We went to, yeah. where else did we? Uh, Justine's. Justine's, yeah. which we loved. Yeah, um, we went to Miss, Miss Rivers. Miss Rivers. Uh, Miss Rivers, that food Lillette? was sick. Lillette? The fried chicken with the dunking. With the honey. Know. Come on, Poppy. Uh, now, this was your home, yes. Hoda, for yes. quite some yes. time. What are the things here in New Orleans that make you feel at home? The corner of Charters and Governor Nichols is the apartment where I lived, uh, right next to Karen Swenson. Right near there is a Croissant Door, the coffee shop that has buttery, delicious almond croissants and that thick chicory coffee. And I remember every morning, because I worked the afternoon shift, going there, grabbing a coffee, oh. eating that croissant, reading the paper, walking the quarter, feeling the love, the heat. I loved every single piece of it, but it was the little things. It's not so much, I mean, I love Jazz Fest and Mardi yeah. Gras, love, 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 but most of life is not that day. Most of life is Wednesday in New Orleans. So what do you do on Wednesday? You do that. You you enjoy like the day, the people, the life, and you hear music coming out of different corridors and you think to yourself, was that Aretha Franklin? You're like, no, it's a 10-year-old who sounds like her, just singing. Like, that's what it's like. Why do people need to come to New Orleans? Why is this a tourist mecca? They are, look, everyone's dusty and tired and closed in and they're becoming introverts. It's time to rip off your corset and get on the plane, okay? It's time to let your freak flag fly. Yeah, and there's no better city. Thank you, ladies. Whether you're a tourist or a local, there's so much about New Orleans to engage with. It's history, it's culture, it's cuisine. And if you're looking for an introduction to, or a refresher course on all three, there's a brand new exhibit designed to do just that. With the 2021 opening of the Four Seasons New Orleans at the foot of Canal Street, comes a new high-tech immersive exhibit called View Orleans. The multi-million dollar experience is designed to connect visitors with our city in a new way. Before we take you on a virtual tour from the bottom to the 360-degree view on top, let's meet three people closely involved in the project. We begin with the CEO of the Woodward Design and Build Architecture Firm, who was there from the start. I'm Paul Flower, and I am the co-developer of View Orleans and the Four Seasons uh, Project. People may not realize it, but uh, the building and land is actually owned by the New Orleans Building Corporation, uh, which is a uh, public benefit corporation for the city of New Orleans. So we have a 99-year lease on that building and under an obligation to develop it into a Four Seasons and just a line in the lease that said, and some sort of museum or attraction for the public. So we decided if we were going to do it, we go all into it 
two of my partners are friends with Henry Louis Gates. And so they talked him into helping with this. And uh, we knew Larry Powell, author of The Accidental City, real well. And we said, can you help too? Because we want something that's historically accurate. I am Lawrence N. Powell, former professor of history at Tulane and the historical consultant for View Orleans. An old friend from graduate school days at Yale, Henry Louis Gates, he's the one who got me involved. He was involved with the developers up in Cambridge, and uh, they got together and they, we put in, they were putting in a proposal to redevelop the old World Trade Center, but the, one of the stipulations was that they needed some kind of cultural attraction an attraction that would bring our city's history to life with the kind of magic an interactive exhibit can bring. For that, they brought in some different kinds of experts. So I am Jim Cortina, principal at Cortina Productions, and we were part of the design and production team that worked on the fabulous new Vu Orleans. And our focus is on the technology side. So that includes interactive exhibits, films, videos, soundscapes, everything on the digital media side that you know helps people gain an understanding you know, of a topic or simply just have fun. So a few uh, large projects that we've worked on more recently, uh, the Smithsonian, uh, African-American History and Culture Museum in Washington, D.C. We've worked also at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. We've also worked around the country. Locally, you can find their work at the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience, the Audubon Aquarium, and the National World War II Museum. Here's Lawrence Powell. It was a back and forth with the design team, the Cortina Productions, and they worked really hard in this. But, you know, if you're not from New Orleans, you could be misled on the Internet. And so it was a matter of they came up with these ideas and they researched it. Then I worked with them. And I, you know, I tried to say, let's, let's massage it here. Let's add more. Uh, we need a new detail. We need a new take. For their exhibits, Cortina Productions creates what they call augmented, mixed, and virtual realities. Again, Jim Cortina. So augmented reality is really something that just comes between you and something real and physical. So it can be a layer that you hold up your smartphone and it in some way changes your view or enhances your view. Virtual reality is where you block out, you know, basically the world around you completely. So that's where you're immersed in a set of you know, goggles that doesn't allow you to see around. Um, mixed reality is a combination of the two. And, you know, they all can come together to really transport people to new experiences. As you first step into the View Orleans experience, you can see what Jim's talking about almost immediately. Local jazz luminaries like Wendell Brunius, Shannon Powell, and Roger Lewis second line through the room, leading the way onward. And then you're greeted by a cast of characters as lively as the city itself. With just a wave of your hand, 
local legends like Henrietta DeLille, Marie Laveau, and George Leidenheimer appear life-size before you to tell you tales of the New Orleans of yore. I am George Leidenheimer. By the time I arrived in New Orleans, German culture was thriving. When I set up my own bakery in 1896, everyone in the city wanted Up next is the exhibit I'm the most fond of, although I have to admit I'm a little biased, the Story Cafe. Take a seat at the counter and peruse the virtual menu, and then learn all about your chosen dish, prepared on the screen by PBS host Kevin Belton and, well, modesty forbids. How about a Ramus gin fizz for our visitor? Well, it starts off with an egg, so that's certainly the first part of a breakfast cocktail. And here we go. I got a little ice in the shaker. Whether you're in the mood for a hearty gumbo or a frothy gin fizz, the cafe is an interactive education in local flavor. Oh, look at this. I got to finish it with a little parsley for you. There's your gumbo. Beautiful. <gasps> Ooh, be careful. Don't burn your mouth on this one. Drop it on their lap, then it'll really burn. You know, I tell you what, if, if it drops, woof, wow, ooh, that's hot. Now, you may hear the sounds of sousaphones again, because in the next room is an immersive encounter with the incredible music New Orleans is known for. From Dr. John to Alan Toussaint, this exhibit will guide you through the history of music in the city that's always march to the beat of its own drum. And just around the corner is another familiar voice in the View River Theater. The Mississippi never lies at rest. It roars. Irma Thomas, the sole queen of New Orleans, narrates a stunning short film about the converging cultures that molded New Orleans, from the swampy port city to the bustling cultural hotspot we know today. Here's Paul Flower. The film narrated by Irma Thomas that, you know, Larry Powell and I, when we were sitting in there and first saw it, we had tears come to our eyes. Anybody that loves New Orleans will have an emotional uh, outpouring, I think, when they see that film. At View Orleans, even the elevators are an experience all their own. Step in, and suddenly, the walls transform into scenes of moonlit marshes, marching bands, and the Mississippi River rushing past. Watch out! On the 33rd floor, you get incredible views of New Orleans from all 360 degrees. You can see Canal Street as it stretches all the way to Mid-City. Admire just how small the French Quarter truly is when it's laid out in front of you. And you can even catch sight of planes taking off from the lakefront airport. Again, Paul Flower. You can see the 360 view of New Orleans. And when you do that, you can visit the augmented reality stations that are a great way to learn about historical uh, buildings that you were looking at. Here's Jim Cortina. So we did it with 
360 degree photography. We had a really talented uh, photographer from New Orleans go up on that building, take our photographs on a beautiful, you know, day uh, of in every direction around. And that's what's incredible about that observation deck is you just see everywhere. And then what we wanted to do was augment, right, that view that you have with neighborhoods so people can get an understanding of where the neighborhoods are in New Orleans and then places to visit and see an interesting history. And what it does is it pops up as you pan the digital display, these attractions, these places and neighborhoods and everything pop up in your view. And then you can touch on those and read a story about each one. And if you look at the floor, we wanted to show how New Orleans operates by a New Orleans compass. Again, Lawrence Powell. We don't say you go north, south, east, west. We think you either go towards the lake or toward the river. You go uptown or you go downtown. And so if you look, there's another compass that is set in the floor. It was important to make sure there was a lot of content, rich content, and it was comprehensive and it was accurate. You know, because it's very easy if you just rely on, you know, conventional sources that you could get a lot wrong. All right, full ahead. Avoid that barge. As part of the exhibit, you get to virtually take the helm of a container ship and try your best to steer it around Algiers Point. You are the helmsman, and I need you to get this container ship, Rosebud, safely around Algiers Point and on to the Port of New Orleans. This stretch... That's great. Again, Jim Cortina. What came out of that, too, was just a, was a fun game, you know, where you get to steer a container ship <laughs> around the most challenging bend on the Mississippi and having a New Orleans river pilot as our expert. So you couldn't ask for, for more than that. Finally, the piece de resistance take the elevator one floor up to the 34th floor, and gone are all the screens and exhibits. Step outside to the open-air observation deck, and you can see for miles and miles in every direction. Here's Paul Flower. Well, first of all, let's all remember that the 34th floor, what is the 34th floor now, used to be the roof. And the story behind that is I was up there one day and I saw this ladder that goes to a roof hatch and I rickety old ladder and I walked up and, and uh, went through the roof hatch and stood on the roof and looked around and said, my, what a view. This is just terrific outside and you feel the air and everything. So I mentioned it to one of my partners. Well, that grew into, oh, we, he came down, did the same thing, said, we got to add a 34th floor. <laughs> so... When you walk out there and you have that glass, structural glass wall, and you can see the city in a way that you just can't see it any place else. That was Paul Flower, Lawrence Powell, and Jim Cortina. Just three among the scores of technicians, architects, artists and entertainers who made View Orleans possible downtown at the foot of Canal Street. For more information on the exhibit, visit vueorleans.com.
When it comes to your home gardening, should you choose organics? What does that even mean? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Winter on the North Shore brings king cake flavored must-haves and Mardi Gras festivities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Should your garden be organic? And what does that really mean, after all? At its simplest, organic means naturally occurring, unadulterated substances. So, in general, to garden organically is to use no chemicals. Fertilizers must be all natural, too. That means it's time to start the compost heap that will become your garden's new best friend. Use organic seeds and plants whenever possible, and please, reuse and recycle. Conserve natural resources by collecting rainwater for your garden, and avoid plastics whenever possible. The single most important thing to consider when planting backyard edibles is the condition of your soil. If you aren't having the dirt in your yard tested for poisonous materials like lead, you may want to consider container gardening or raised beds because all organic gardening truly begins in the soil. But oh my, the benefits! Medical studies show that children raised on organic food have a lower risk of eczema and allergies. Food grown organically has been proven to have higher antioxidants along with more vitamins, minerals, enzymes, and micronutrients. For instance, organic carrots, spinach, lettuce, potatoes, and cabbage have measurably more vitamin C, iron, magnesium, phosphorus, and less nitrates than conventionally grown ones. There 
is a healthier way of life waiting for you, right in your own backyard. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. January morning, I was reading the New Orleans Times-Picayune when I came across a photo that really caught my attention. It featured Mid-City resident Jack Sweeney standing proudly in front of his backyard garden. Towering high above him, 15 feet in the air, was an okra plant that looked like something out of a fairy tale. The image was part of a whimsical article by writer Doug McCash, who had some fun connecting Jack with the famous beanstalk grower of the same name. While a picture can tell a story, seeing is believing, and I was eager to get a glimpse of the giant okra stalk myself. Hello, I'm Jack. Uh, Welcome to my backyard, where I grew big okra over here. (laughs) Louisiana Eats joined Jack and his girlfriend, Kate Gotro, in their backyard garden a few weeks later. They explained to us the whole story of how the plant they call big okra came to be. Well, I see that you've got, you know, your tomatoes neatly in cages, and you got a big pepper plant that's staked. Obviously, you are quite a home gardener. How did you develop this love? Well, it's definitely inherited. Um, You know, I grew up with my dad growing things constantly, constantly. Um, And when I was a little kid, he had me pull the weeds. So I resented it for a while and I resisted it for a while. But once I moved out and, you know, had a backyard, you know, the, the impulse was undeniable. And when the pandemic came, I had all this time and just, you know, couldn't help but use these bricks I had laying around to build a bed and get stuff growing. Kate loves tomato sandwiches. So the goal was to just grow some tomatoes so we could have some good quality tomato sandwiches. But uh, very quickly, I, you know, started experimenting, growing different things. My dad was always into gardening growing up. And, you know, when he comes and visits, he'll come with, you know, whatever seeds he's got that he's into or whatever extra plants he has that he needs to offload. And, um, you know, he started me off with a lot of these different plants, you know, tomatoes, you know, peppers. And then he gave me a jar of okra seeds. You know, I guess it was two years ago and I only started planting them about a year ago, you know, in March or so of last year. So that okra crop went in in March and now we're standing here 10 months or so later. Tell us about what happened here in the garden. I, uh, you know, I planted some like 20 okra seeds and, you know, some like 10 sprouted. And then three of them got to a point where they were, you know, big enough to actually transfer into the bed and count on getting fruit out of them. And, uh, you know, they, they were pretty normal plants. The other two grew to about six feet. That would have been, you know, last summer. So they were at six feet and the other one started started just kept going like the others stopped and it made it to about eight feet before I was like okay this is like a this is a a special plant and then um you know I guess it would have been in November that the other two started to die and this plant the big plant was at 10 feet by then 
So Jack, I have never seen an okra stalk that's about the diameter of a broomstick. That, that alone is pretty awesome. Right. You know, I didn't have to stake it at all. It just kept getting stronger and stronger. You can see it looks almost like a tree trunk, like browning at the bottom, you know, like it's at the very bottom. It's almost at like my wrist, probably about Kate's wrist. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's really remarkable, um, and you you can see and you can see all the notches where there were leaves. Um, you know, the leaves were the leaves were enormous and like leathery. They felt like elephant ears. It looked like it was something from like Jurassic Park or like Land Before Time. It was very it was very uh, prehistoric looking. It, it just grew straight up. I never really had to hold it back from the wall or anything. It just did it. It just knew exactly what it had to do. <laughs> the seeds came from your father, who is quite a devoted gardener up in Baton Rouge, huh? Yeah, yeah, he's something of a mad scientist of a gardener, right? You know, I don't know if you know the R.L. Stein book, Stay Out of the Basement, about the mad scientists, uh, mad botanists that grow in weird, uh, alive plants in his in his basement. My dad's kind of kind of like that. You know, he's experimenting with with fertilizers, you know, with different dirt, with, you know, different plants, crossbreeding plants, you know, he's, he's always doing something crazy. Well, I never was one to take notes much, but in saving seeds, you always look for the ones that's the, that are the best, and you save the seeds off for those. Jack's father, Neil Sweeney, joined us from Baton Rouge via Zoom to help fill out the picture. So there was some reason why I saved those particular seeds, and I wish I knew, but we're gonna save the seeds off a of big okra, and uh, we'll see what comes of that. So tell My me. My first grandchild. Your first grandchild, big okra? Yeah. <laughs> Certainly the most famous. How did you foster this love of home gardening in your son? Because it seems to have worked. Where does it come from in you, and, and how did you transfer that love? Oh, gosh, I grew up gardening with my mom and my dad, mostly my mom. We'd take the wagon out to the cow pasture and pick up cow manure and drag it back and grow all kind of stuff at my house. And then when I started growing my own garden, the first seeds I was saving were flower seeds. And uh, that's it, <laughs> because I had all these flowers that produced tons of seeds, uh, cosmos and something else, and zinnia seeds. And we had loads of fun with those. Uh, the kids, and I have a daughter also, we'd make, uh, we call them flower bombs. We'd, we, we'd make mud pies with seeds in them and throw them out of the windows when we were going on the interstate. <laughs> and, and some of those took for a while, but I don't think any of them are there anymore. But when I started growing my own garden uh, you know jack was always interested so you know i did he just was interested in the things that i had here so i'd give him some plants from here and he'd take them home and plant them in his little place in new orleans you know some things grow better in new orleans than here i think probably okra's one of them i understand you all are hoping against hope the folks from the guinness book of world records are coming right so it was probably around November that I realized this was a freakishly tall okra plant. And uh, I just Googled Guinness World Record tallest okra plant. And someone in Oklahoma earlier in the year had beaten it with 13 feet. So I, you know, bided my time, waited for it to get, you know, past 13 feet, 13 and a half feet might have been. 
And then I filled out Guinness's, they have a form on their website, you know, and drop down menu plants, drop down menu tallest, drop down menu okra. Um, and I submitted it. They said they could get back within 12 weeks, or if I had 800 bucks to spare, I could get an expedited response in five. So I filled out the 12 week form. Um, and it's probably been about 12 weeks now. I haven't heard back. I was worried initially that it wouldn't make it through the winter and the Guinness folks would miss it, but it looks like it's, it'll be here for at least a little while longer. So I'm hoping that they uh, get their act together and get down here, certify this record. <laughs> Jack, when the inevitable happens and um, big okra goes to that big vegetable plot in the sky, do you have any plans for preserving the stock, keeping it with you for life. How do you feel about the potential of losing big okra one day? It's kind of funny. I like really didn't think that we'd get to this point where the okra is still alive and still growing. So I'd already like come to peace several times over with the possibility of losing it. So I'm actually very zen about it. Um, but when it was at a more reasonable height, my plan was, you know, pull it up, hang it upside down, dry it out, and, like, you know, coat it in polyurethane or something, make a walking stick. Now it's way too big to be a walking stick. But I'm still going to do dry it out and think of find something that will, uh, you know, keep it from decomposing and just hold on to it for a bit. <laughs> Well, Jack, this is an amazing, amazing thing. I'm, I'm very grateful that uh, Doug McCash ran up the flagpole <laughs> on you and your giant okra stock. And I'm thrilled that we were able to bring this story to our Louisiana Eats listeners. So thanks, Jack. Thank you all for coming. It was great. And Kate, good job with the okra PR. Thank you. My services um, may become more widely available if you have like a really big tomato or a really purple eggplant. Or <laughs> that was Jack Sweeney and Kate Gotro speaking to us at their Mid-City Backyard Garden. And proud grandfather Neil Sweeney joining us from Baton Rouge. Big Okra successfully made it through last winter, and four months after this piece first aired in March, it was finally officially measured. As part of Jack and Kate's pursuit of the official Guinness Book designation, two arborists and a botanist from LSU Ag visited the towering plant. They determined Big Okra to be a whopping 16.4 feet tall. Even more remarkable, they measured the stalk's circumference to be three inches in diameter at chest height, which meant big okra could qualify as a tree. Tree or not, it's official. Jack's famous stalk is now the tallest known example of okra in the world and he's got the certificate to prove it. But all good things must come to an end, and you can add Big Okra to the list of celebrities we lost in 2022. Abel Moscas Esculentus, we hardly knew ye. But who knows? In the new year, if you see Jack rambling through Mid-City with a walking stick, 
you may get the chance to meet the record-setting plant in its second life. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.